Coaching Inside the Box. A youth soccer coaching podcast. A Brit, a Brazilian, and an American discuss culture and environment and the impact it has on youth development. Can you coach inside the box? Welcome back to Coaching Inside the Box, episode 43. We are rocking, we are ready to go, but let me start with this. Anyone trying to develop a sound and imaginative understanding of this game needs to listen to this podcast. It is virtually impossible to get this insight from 98% of the other sources out there. This will open your mind. I want to thank Ice in Indiana who wrote that review for us on Apple Podcasts. I think it's wonderful. I think it's great. And I think he's spot on. This podcast is as good as it gets. If you're listening to this, we would love if you took a brief moment, give us a review, Spotify, Apple um, uh, Podcasts, um, YouTube, wherever it might be. It'll help us get this information out to more people um, because we are really passionate about what we do. And uh, Hot Dog, we are really good at this, Andy. Well, you know, I, I I have to say that, you know, I know that the English part of this trio is really good at this, but I'm not so sure about the other two, you know, but hey, we have to do with what we have, right? You know, so. Just by not being English, the other two parts are better. So. <laughs> <laughs> In all seriousness, I, 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 get a, I get a little charged every time I read a review um, uh, from the people that listen to this podcast. I mean, it's not a, a massive amount of people. We're not reaching millions, but we're reaching some people and having an impact. And, and, and that's really, really, really fun. Not for our own ego, although my ego grows a little bit every time I read one of those uh, reviews, uh, but because I think that the way that we approach the game, the way that we introduce the game, the way that we connect with players and parents and other coaches, um, I think is a positive within um, our community. So it's nice to, to reach into other communities bigger than, than our community's own. Speaking of that, Andy's taken on a new role here locally in Kansas City. Not only is he obviously the director of Legends Soccer Clubs, um, uh, the third of the three in uh, Coaching Inside the Box podcast, but he's also now the technical coach of a new um, amateur adult men's league, men's team in the MPSL locally in Kansas City with the Kansas City Soul. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of these players are good enough to play professionally. You know, we've got such a great soccer base in Kansas City that players that were, you know, would be professional players elsewhere, you know, don't have the professional options, even though we've got professional teams in every league in Kansas City. Uh, and, you know, we've got such a massively deep base. Kansas City is just a hotbed of players. And a lot of these guys come home from college in the summer. You know, there's guys that play pro for the Comets during the winter that are playing on our team now. So these are current professional players. And the standard of soccer is absolutely wonderful. You know, and it's, it's an honor to have been asked to, you know, uh, be an assistant coach with the team as well as the technical coach of the team, you know, and make a contribution to you know, to Kansas City soccer and helping it grow at the adult level. And it's got to be fun coaching alongside Hugh. Those of you listening, Hugh Williams um, is is another Kansas City legend in the game. Um, Andy and Hugh go way back all the way to college. I'll let you give the uh, the history in a moment, Andy. But Hugh spent um, a couple of years as the uh, Kansas City current at the time, Casey Woso, 
GM essentially uh, running the team from that perspective, but also coach the the, the the women's pro team for a full year. It's got to be a good time to be on the sideline with him. It's been a long time since that happened, I guess. Yeah, I hope Hugh's listening to this podcast because you know that's really the only downside of being involved with the the small. He's <laughs> <laughs> having to put up with the, the the guy from Wales. You know, the guys from England and guys from Wales don't usually associate with each other. You know, and yeah. so you know, it's no, I'm just kidding. You know, it's absolutely wonderful. You know, because, uh, you know, we, we, you know, he was the best man in my wedding. You know, we've best, been best friends ever since college. You know, there's a ton of respect and a ton of loyalty, you know, between the two of us. So it's great to be working with him again because we've worked together on so many things over the decades. You know, and inevitably, you know, you go your own separate ways for a while. But, you know, it's great to pull it back together and, and uh, you know, actually be, you know, seeing him on a daily basis right now. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's get into the topic uh, du jour for today. Um, it's now late May in Kansas City. That means we are right in the thick of tryout preparation. Um, I know every region across the United States, their tryout um, setup is a little bit different. The calendar is a little bit different. But for us, tryouts are the second weekend in June. Um, so late May, we've got ID sessions going on. All the clubs are putting on, trying to put their best foot forward to um, give kids a perspective in, in, in terms of what it would be like to play for their club. Um, and we're knee deep into that. But no, nobody is more knee deep into that, at least in my neck of the woods, than Philippe Abreu. Philippe, with your 2009s, it sounds to me like you've got kids just knocking on your door begging to to get involved in the setup despite the coaching despite the coaching yeah, yeah. <laughs> well that's what happens when when the club has a great philosophy and you know the kids develop despite the coach so um yeah i mean there's a lot of good talent um coming around a lot of kids interested from from different clubs and you know just one of my my parents were saying that just tells a lot about our team about our culture about you know our club you know when we play against those teams and they see the things that our kids can do how our parents behave in the sidelines and you know how our coach just coach the kids um, from a positive perspective and you know always asking them to do stuff that the other coaches are actually doing the opposite asking them not to do uh, asking them to play safe and not take the risk, and we're asking them to take the risk. So I think that when when we have that kind of interest from, you know, a big group of people, that just shows that, you know, we're doing the right thing, and that's that's very rewarding. So, And we always have space for everybody. We never cut. So, you know, we, we can make another team, and we make another team. You know? Yeah, yeah, and and um, and I know people listening to that might take a cynical perspective. Oh, they never cut. It's just a business. It's about the dollar bills. No, it's 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 a it's a program centered around using soccer as a vehicle to teach life lessons. And our belief is that. Um, every kid should have access to a program that encourages them to take risk and encourages them to embrace failure, encourages them, gives them a platform to build their self-confidence that starts on a soccer field, but then bleeds into every other area in their life. And for that reason, we're large enough and have enough coaches that we can create teams at literally every level to and serve every I kid. Mean, I mean, I think it's so funny because when people cut, it's because, okay, we can only start three teams, so we have enough to have you know, three teams, right? Why do you always cut in the bottom? 
scared in the top. <laughs> Develop the the bottom players. Yeah. You know, they their kids. They have the same rights and they deserve to have the same kind of attention. So, why always cut in the bottom? Cut in the top. You know, give sure. kids an opportunity. So, somebody has to do it. Somebody needs to be able to give everyone an opportunity, and that's what we do. Can, can I interject here because no. one? <laughs> okay, I'm leaving. <laughs> and the podcast I, just got better. Yeah, I, yeah. Um, you know, I, I laugh at the high school system because you know, in in high school, parents would would be up in arms if you know their high school wouldn't let the kid into science class mm. you know math class english class whatever it is history class you know you know they'd be up at the school complaining you know it would be on the local news and you know we we move into the high school sports program and only the elite players get to represent the school you know and you know you can be a kid that desperately needs high school soccer maybe a little overweight you know and you need to train for a season to you know to get in shape and you know and uh, you know maybe you're the least skilled person in the high school at soccer but you need that opportunity to be part of a team to identify to be challenged to be creative to grow your self concept to all the things that sports can provide and, and yet the schools are saying, no, there's only two teams or three teams. And, you know, I'm sorry, we're not creating a fourth team, you know, just because, you know, we've got a whole bunch of players that just want to play, you know, and represent their high school at the fourth team level. You know, isn't that against, you know, like an educational mandate? You know, we're, you know, we're funding these schools and yet it's elitist. Sports at the high school level is unashamedly elitist. They're saying, yeah, we might be fair about our academics, but to hell with being fair about our sports. And in this modern day and age where kids spend way too much on their cell phones and looking at social media, they're not you know, creating teams for the fourth team group that want to play or the fifth team group. You know, they're just you know, keeping it at one or two or three teams. And what's, what's interesting about that is I'm currently reading a book, I can't remember the author, it was called The Good Life. Um, and it's, it's uh, I'm just three chapters in, so it's early in, but I was just reading it the other day. Um, and um, the concept behind it, it, it it's, it's two caretakers of this Harvard study that has gone on since like 1936 or something like that. And they follow, they, initially they followed wealthy kids from, from Harvard and, um, and not wealthy kids from like the Boston inner city. And they followed them their entire, it's a longitudinal study. So it follows them. It checks in with them every year about their health and their overall happiness. They're wanting to study what makes humans happy, what makes people happy. Um, and, and, and as they get married, as they have kids, they start following those. So this is thousands of people in the study and they've been doing it for some odd years. Right. And, um, the chapter that I was reading last night is they said that all of the data support that actually your academics, how you do in school, does not suggest even one little bit about how happy you will be later in life. Instead, all of the data supports that how you how you interact and socially connect with friends will determine your happiness, regardless of how intelligent you are, regardless of your grades, regardless of any of those things. Um, and if you were to peel that back and look at high school, right, what is the area that is most considered to be um, for high school students where they're going to make those friends and, and, and forge those social relationships and make those mistakes and figure out how to, how to work socially with others? It, 
it's on the athletic field. And so it, I think you could make an argument that if there's an area that has more importance for our society to move on from a happiness enjoyment perspective, it should be athletics versus the math classroom, um, or at least on par with the math classroom. Yet we give everybody a math book, but we limit the number of people that get to touch the football. It, it all comes down to equality of opportunity. Yeah. And, you know, this is one of the most interesting things. And I'm going to digress a little bit, but, you know, but it's very relative to soccer. And, you know, and um, so uh, conservatives complain about welfare programs, you know, and this is one of my, you know, most most intriguing is I watch what happens in society, you know, from a sideline position, uh, the intriguing things about the, you know, the whole attitude of nobody deserves a handout. And, you know, we're in a situation in this country where a certain, you know, limited percentage of people get massive handouts every year. Uh, and, and, you know, and, and, you know, this has been going on forevermore. And the whole system protects, you know, that handout. And the people that are actually complaining the loudest about, you know, people at the lower level of the, of the, you know, uh, spectrum, getting public assistance and welfare in order to equalise their opportunity in life, you know, are actually the ones that benefit to the greatest degree of the free handout. Have you ever heard the saying, "The first generation earns it, the following generations burn it"? About wealth, the greatest handout is inherited wealth. And here's the thing, the kids that get this money from their parents or their grandparents or, you know, whatever, they've done nothing to earn it. You know, the grandparents did something to earn it. They were the ones that sweated long hours and, you know, building businesses and, you know, and taking the risks and investing money, hard-earned money and, you know, reinvesting it in the business, you know. And then the next generation earned it a lot less. And then the following generation didn't do anything to earn that wealth, you know. But it's passed on generation, generational wealth in families. You know, it is the biggest welfare system in the history of the world. And it makes absolute... I'm sorry, a-holes out of a lot of kids that receive that wealth because they know they don't have to work. They know they don't have to put in the effort. They don't have to build the skills. They don't have to dedicate themselves to anything and they can go and, you know, have holidays all over the world and lay on beaches and, you know, and, and fly by private jet or whatever it is, you know, whatever degree of wealth they've got, it destroys their character and it also destroys their happiness in the process. When you have it easy... You cannot accomplish, you know, you just can't accomplish when you have it easy, you know, and we get our happiness out of a feeling of self-worth, which comes with accomplishment. So in our program, we have equality of opportunity. Everybody is accepted at tryouts and people say it's a dollar grab. It's not a dollar grab. You know, we have to work really hard, harder, if you like, you know, often with the kids that don't have the fitness, don't have the technical ability that, you know, are coming to the game later, but we will not turn them away. You know, we have constantly worked to include every single player, you know, in our club. And we're the only club since 1989 in Kansas City that has grown every year, even through the pandemic, you know, because we are constantly trying to help everybody. It's not about the money. We find a way to get every poor kid involved, even if they can't afford coaching fees, you know. And, you know, I know that both of you give up, you know, a lot of income so that, you know, poor kids, 
you know, can be involved in what we do. You know, and I've been funding kids for their whole soccer program for years out of this organization. You know, and so, you know, and that's what people don't realize is we have a really warped society where the people that complain the loudest about welfare are actually on the greatest welfare system in the history of the world, in the richest country in the world, and they're taking money to the bank every week in inheritance or in, on interest as a result of their inheritance, have done diddly squat to earn that, that inheritance. Does that's, that make sense? That's rich coming from an Englishman who's got a monarchy. <laughs> hey, I'm not a royalist. I'm kidding. I'm I, kidding. I am not a royalist. I'm kidding. It is. That's the biggest money grab in world history. Yeah. You know, great Britain is not great. It's, you know, they're the biggest abusers of the rest of the world and indigenous peoples around the world to make that money. Yeah. For you sure. Know, I for mean, sure. just millions of murders. Yep. Worldwide. For sure. For sure. But you guys, Don't get me started on history. <laughs> but, you guys, but you guys invented soccer, so you're all forgiven. <laughs> the greatest game that was that there ever was. Okay, so... And, so, we, and we made it better. <laughs> so we want to... I can't argue with that. Uh, no, I think this is episode one, two, three, four, five, six. Um, so, uh, so today we want to talk about tryouts, right? Those listening, um, I imagine, are largely youth soccer coaches, youth soccer parents, and you've got your own experience with tryouts what they look like how they how they how they feel um positive and negative um and and the culture of tryouts in your community and i want to kind of start on a historical front here and we'll come forward and talk about specifically the mechanics of our tryouts and why we run the tryouts the way that we do but those that are listening if you're new to the podcast new to the episode to, to, uh, to listening to us, you'll know that, uh, or you should know that I played for Andy from six or seven to, to 18. Uh, my whole youth career was one playing for Andy. Um, and, uh, maybe I'm the first example of we'll take everybody. Maybe that's it. Um, yeah, you, will, you know, my biggest equality of opportunity. Yeah. This, this big, kid looks like a project. Let's bring him in. Um, you were my biggest <laughs> negative example, you know, and unfortunately it didn't work out, you know, and I still have to put up with you. you know? <laughs> yeah. You can't get rid of I saw a picture of Polly the other day, and I'm like, how did Andy take that kid? <laughs> it, it, incredible. You see that? The one with his... With like, the Rex specs? Three-inch three thick glasses. Oh. <laughs> you look like he's going to s snowboarding with those... those, those <laughs> And he was a roly poly, wasn't he? Yeah. So, um, so I played. I played for Andy from from six or seven to eighteen. I went away for college. After college, I, my degree was in secondary education and history. I stayed in my college town for a year, for two years. Um, uh, taught uh, at a school, ran Happy Feet, our soccer program in Springfield, as the first franchise. And then I came back and have been working alongside Andy ever since. I remember. The first time I came back, it was I think it was January. I showed up. We get rolling. Andy sets me up on some some projects he wants me to work can, on. Can I interject? It's no, kind of, it's kind of like a wart. You know, the wart. You know, you cut it out, it grows back. Cut it out, it grows back. You can't you know? get rid of me. Can't yeah. get rid of me. So uh, so so January, couple projects that gets me all the way till the end of April. And Andy calls a meeting and pulls us all in into the the uh, conference room together. He's like, all right, guys, we got to start preparing for tryouts. And I was like, okay, this this seems odd. And he's like, I don't know. We want this to happen, this to happen, this to happen. You're in charge of this. You're in charge of this. You're in charge of that. And I'm thinking, man, this seems like a really big deal. Um, and I remember saying to Andy after that meeting, I was like, Andy, why are tryouts such a big deal? Six years ago, when I was last in Kansas City as a part of the Legends Club, tryouts were nothing. My entire youth career, we didn't have tryouts. And you were like, yeah, sure, we had tryouts. Kids would come. 
during the summer to our practice and they'd jump in and they'd figure out if they could make the cut or not. Like if, if they'd fit into the team that we had and that was it. And I was like, I didn't even notice there was no song and dance yet. You're telling me now, I mean, we're literally going to put on a full presentation um, at the soccer fields in a couple of weeks. And you want me to be responsible for this. I had no idea what I was getting into from a tryout perspective. And it felt like literally in a blink of an eye in Kansas city, locally tryouts, had changed entirely Um, and they'd become this which I'm totally fine with right but this full-on production um, that was totally different than the the tryouts of my youth Andy can you talk about um, maybe what tryouts looked like when I was a kid initially and then we'll move into what tryouts look like now well the, the number one reason why your team didn't feel impacted by tryouts uh, and I'm being serious here, totally serious. I joke around a lot, but um, is that, you know, I didn't cut anybody, you know. So, you know, it, it was my principle that I didn't care if I had a world superstar coming for tryouts. My players were and are my players. If they if they want to come back, they got a spot. Yeah, you know, unless they leave, you know. And, and, and the other thing is they didn't leave because they were not getting equal playing time because we had an equal playing sure. time philosophy as well. So I gave them no reason to leave. And, you know, and, you know, we've got the reputation as doing the best job in terms of building skill and speed of play under pressure and, you know, incredible technical ability. So there's no reason to leave if they wanted to optimize their ability to play the game. And so we had virtually no turnover, you know, with, with your group. You know, and, you know, uh, you know, one here, one there, but nothing like the other teams and the other clubs that, you know, would axe their bottom five worst athletes and bring in faster athletes every year, you know, and then play a tactical game to try and win. It was all about developing my kids, my family, you know, my group of players, you know, and, you know, your team, you know, was the number one team in terms of national indoor championships won during your youth career when there wasn't any futsal. You know, it was boarded indoor and, you know, you were the number one in the whole history of the game in North America in terms of the number of championships that your teams won. Year after year after year, you were top of the pile. Um, and a lot of it was that, you know, even though we had some players that weren't that athletic, they were incredibly skillful. And so under pressure in tight spaces, you know, they could do amazing things. And it didn't matter if they were rocket fast. You know, you know they, they could impact the game, you know, really crucially at the, the right moment in order to help the team win. You know, and, you know, and it wasn't about winning. It was about the individual win, but we won plenty as a team because we valued the individual so much and focused on developing the individual into brave, creative leaders for life but also incredible goal scorers, dribblers, the players like Leo Messi and Mbappé in the last World Cup, you know, the, you know, without those two players, you know, or one of those two players, it would have been a very lopsided final. Well, there's something to be said, too, for the culture that we had within the team and within the club as a whole, right? Um, but the culture that we had was one where um, we as individuals mattered more to you than the team, meaning you weren't going to switch us out if some fast big kid came along. And so that enabled us to, one, feel safe, right? And, and, and recognize that we can, we can push the edge of the envelope, we can make mistakes, and that can be part of growth and, and, and maturation. But then also the team didn't turn over every year. And so we were able to build this culture that was, that was really positive. Um, it wasn't a, a new start every year. In, in a way it did turn over, you know, because 
Um, you know, we lost players from, you know, age 11 onwards to different sports. You yeah, know, sure. You know, you know we, we lost Brendan Kennison, Adam Pummel, Johnny Sweeney, yep. Colby Parks. You know, was, every year there was, you know, one really good player that we would have loved to have kept that would have, you know, made us perennial outdoor champions as well as perennial indoor champions. You know, but they left us. I don't believe the organization should cut kids. You know, I, I think it's a horrible thing to do, you know, is to say you're just not good enough, kid. I mean, think about that psychologically. You know, you really damage young people when you say you're not good enough. We are divorcing you, you know, and leave them to pick up the pieces. And we never do that as an organization. We persevere and persevere and persevere. And if they want to leave us for something else, you know, we stay friends, mm-hmm. you know, and we say the door's always open if you want to come back, you know. And so, so, you know, this is the way it should be with kids. Kids make mistakes. Adults with all their experience shouldn't make mistakes in terms of slapping kids in the face. Sure. You know, and that's what other clubs do. They do it left and right. It's an incredible risk to take with your child to get them involved with another club that's going to kick them in the teeth at some point if they've got a better, better athlete that comes along. So, so, and from a mechanics perspective, tryouts in, in the 90s, um, when I was a kid participating, the mechanics of the actual tryout is similar to what our mechanics of our tryouts now. Like, like they happen to practice, so we did 1v1s and 2v2s in tryouts. Then we do 1v1s and 2v2s in tryouts now. We'll dig in to that a little bit later here in this episode but then it was just a practice right it was just a practice of a kid hopping into i remember distinctly when precky um's nephew i think came and tried out for the 81 82s the older team precky if you're listening and don't know this would have been around 1998 which was when he represented the united states uh in the world cup in, in france in 1998 um uh so there wasn't a whole lot to it Whereas now we've got marketing videos, we've got giant tents, um, you know, we've got Andy on a bullhorn, right, giving uh, a club presentation. Um, we've got a full-on song and dance, and I think you could, uh, I think people do take an outsider look to it, going, "Man, what is wrong with society when we've got this giant production built around tryouts?" And I think they're taking entirely too cynical of of a look at it. What's happened? at least in Kansas City from a youth soccer perspective, from the 90s until now, is a a great example of capitalism at work, right? A great example of of the interest in the game growing, more kids wanting to participate, and thus more clubs appearing um, to provide those kids with the service they're looking for. And when there are numerous clubs in a community, like there is in Kansas City, we have a ton of clubs, then the competition is high to, to, to recruit those players, to get those players to join your club. And when the competition is high, you can't just mail it in. You got to be at your best. And so I, maybe in a perverse way, always really love late May, early June, because I love talking to families. I love talking to parents about the value of who we are and what we do and the exciting pieces of that. I love the hunt, if that makes sense. Like I, I had two long conversations after training last night with parents from other clubs that are interested in coming out to, to join our group. And I, I, I mean, I get charged up talking about 
you know, the value of, of, of what we do and why we do it. And so while I think we could have a cynical outsider's view of like, oh my gosh, this is a giant song and dance for eight, nine-year-olds to find a soccer team to play on. Um, there is so many, so many positives um, I think that you can look at and say, oh, this is a big deal and it matters to kids and it matters to families. And that's why um, it's got such a um, uh, commercial feel to it at times. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I, I think for me it's 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 uh, you know it's not anything to do with the commercial. It's you know when I talk with you know a, a family, you know, and you know there's a, there's a young kid that's been playing for another club that you know is more intent on winning games than they should be, you know, and as a result, you know, the kids aren't getting trained to be great dribblers and goal scorers. Uh, you know, I I get excited about giving this kid the opportunity to see the game through the lens of a, a Pelé, a Maradona, a Johan Cruyff, a Ronaldinho, a Leo Messi, a CR7. No Marta. A Tobin Heath. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You know, and you know, these are the the um the more creative players, you know, from the women's and men's game in history. And, you know, most kids are never asked by their coaches to look at the world from uh, a creative artistic perspective. You know, they're just asked to do the things they need to do expediently to win the game, and often and totally wrongly for the coach's ego. And so I get excited when I tell them about our indoor facilities and the massive repetition that we can give their kids on, you know, when they're shooting in our boxes, you know, the 60 to 80,000 reps that my daughter took in one year in this facility of shooting, you know, and, uh, and then, you know, the, the thousands and thousands of moves that they're going to do and how they're going to learn to take people on, you know, in the most risky situations in the game, you know, and be a Leo Messi, you know, and, and be a Ronaldinho is probably the most skillful player ever, right? You know, I would think so. You yeah. know, and, uh, you know, and that opportunity, you know, it's defining because, you know, the kids now, you know, they, they walk away going, hey, that sounded great. You know, I, you know, I'd love to be that player. I would love to be given the license to kill, you know, James Bond style, you know, be, be out there, you know, taking on defenders, you know, blowing by them and, and ripping a ball from 25 yards into the top corner of the net. I've never been asked to do that. I've never learned to shoot. Most teams have one or two players that are fast, that, you know, that can shoot, and the rest of the team tries to get the ball to those players all game long, which is great for those two players. Well, it's not really because they're not being taught the moves and the things that we teach them. They're not being taught to finish properly even. They're just being used to toe-poke the ball into the net you know, in order to get a result. But at the end of the day, that's how a lot of teams survive because the coach can pat himself on the back at the end and say, hey, we won again, guys. Aren't we good? You know, and go to work on a Monday morning and around the water cooler say, hey, my team's top of the league. We've won eight games. And, you know, and it's been you know, 10 players serving the ball long to one fast forward who's got early maturity. You know, and in two or three years' time, that guy doesn't have the maturity advantage that he or she used to have. Everything equalizes up and the rest of the players are like fish out of water because they don't have this big, fast guy that can score the goals anymore. Sure. And so the team splits up, and the best three or four go somewhere else looking for you know, a quick win again. Well, that's not the way life is. It's constant creative development that fulfills potential, and that's what we do. And we want everybody to enjoy that, not just the athletically elite. Yeah, for sure. Philippe, when you're at a tryout, 
right? As a coach, right? Are you, are you looking for like when you're observing players that are playing, right? Um, do you look at it from a perspective of, can this kid fit in with my group? Or do you look at it from a perspective of, uh, here's a binary choice for you by, by the way, uh, or do you look at, at a, from a perspective of, um, this specific player that I'm evaluating, what's their ceiling? I think it's a little bit of both. So I, a lot of it, I look at, you know, the potential that I think that kid can have. Uh, a lot of times I try to think they're not Legends players. They don't play here. So there are certain things that they're not going to do, but I can teach them. So if I, I try to picture the kid after what I can do and see, try to imagine what they can reach. And a lot of what I look for as well is, you know, what's their attitude, how hard they work, you know, are they coachable, are they getting along with the boys, you know, when I talk to the parents, I'm also interviewing the parents, I don't want to bring anybody in that it's going to cause the headaches or, are you know, are here to get, you know, the best team they can and then, you know, but as soon as an opportunity in the academy comes, they're going to leave right away. You know, that's so all those things I try to take into consideration. Obviously, I'm not going to hold any kid back that, you know, will have a great opportunity. I, I was looking at the National League table. The game that I lost that we if we would have won, we would have made it to nationals. I mean, I didn't have Daniel, which is he was in England, was a great opportunity for him, but I miss him in the most important game of our season. Would he, we, if we would have won that game, we would not only made it to Nationals, but we already be qualified for National League Pro. We already probably be qualified to Regionals. I mean, in just that one, but it was the opportunity for the kid. We're not going to hold anyone back, but I don't want to bring anybody in that is going to come in, you know, but that's not where they want to be. I want kids that want to be here. I want you know, parents that want to be here. I want people that be there are bought in and what we do. But yeah, I look at the player. I try to see, you know, you know, especially in my age group, you see some kids that mature really early and some kids that haven't matured yet. And a lot of the kids, you look at them, they're still small, but you, you can tell they're still going to grow and you already see the technical ability, the skill, the speed, the intensity. And you're like, okay, once that kid hits that growth spur, that's how good he'll be. So I try to look at all those things because, again, it's not just for the win, right? So it's not about this kid comes, he's, you know, physically, you know, big already, muscular, and you know he's going to cause a lot of impact right now, but he's kind of a donkey, you know? But Maybe right he's now... near the near the ceiling. Right, exactly. So, like, we're going to... Yes, we play him up top, he's going to high press, and he's going to win a lot of foot races fight for the ball you know cause some trouble but he's not that good of a player right now or maybe he has a crappy attitude you know that's that that's not the kid i want to bring in so, so what i hear you saying is that you're looking for the, the one of the challenges we have that i've noticed as a legends coach is that when kids from the outside come in to try out for our teams um they're obviously not as skillful as the, as the players that, that they're trying out with they're obviously totally uncomfortable and i'm gonna add one thing just so that that is a very good point a few weeks ago had a session here in the indoor field and our indoor field, you're basically right outside of the box, right? And the kids would not shoot. They would get the ball, but because they're getting the ball to the keeper, just 
just looking for a simple pass and a movement. Or they get the ball closer to the middle, they just pass it back. And I'm like, guys, realize where you are in and out. And I was going the full outdoor goal, like the black tapes, like mm -hmm. the full 11-11 goal. They were just not taking shots, you know, because yeah. they're not conditioned that way. So I told them, guys, recognize where you are. Let's start looking for shots. Let's start, you know, create the space. Boom. Then the pressure is going to come even higher to you, it's going to raise the intensity of the practice if the shot is not open. Now you pass and move, but looking forward, right? Well, and that, that's part of the point that I'm, I, I want to make is that, that, that they're not as skillful as the players that they're trying against, right? And the sessions that we're running, the environment that we create is so different than yeah. what they're used to. That's a, that's a challenge for us as we're evaluating those players because they are totally outside of their comfort zone and have yet to develop the ability to be comfortable outside of their comfort zone. But within that, you're looking for players that have a ceiling, right? That, that have a high ceiling that can, that can develop and grow into becoming um, really good players. And all of that makes a ton of sense. So th the question I have for Andy now is we choose 1v1s primarily, but then a little bit of 2v2s as well as our, as our, as our tryout practice concept. Why does that give us, why, is, why do we consider that to be the best platform to determine whether a kid, um, uh, you know, what their ceiling is, where they fit in? What, why is that better than just 8v8 scrimmaging? Or why is that better than uh, lining them up and, and doing drills that are, that are followed by lines? So hold that thought a minute. And, and let's look at this from a developmental perspective. So we have a reputation as being the club that optimizes people's potential, creative potential, but you know, we're bulldogs on the dirty side of the ball because we play so many one-on-ones you know, as, as a foundation exercise for developing great players. You know, take them on and shoot, take them on and shoot. The goals are close together, tons of shots, tons of moves, you know, and a shot is nothing but the most difficult pass under pressure. So if you can do that, passing's a breeze anyway. And, and so, um, you know, the, the, the tryout scenario uh, was one that I struggled with for years because uh, I always came away from tryouts, you know, when I, when I was putting together teams on the front end of the club where I had, you know, a bunch of kids come in and trying out, um, I, I played scrimmages, you know, early in my career to try and identify the players I wanted to keep. And I came away from those tryouts with huge buyer's remorse. You know, that's when you, you, know, you buy something at a store, you get it home, and you realize... I'm it, very familiar. <laughs> it was too expensive. Yeah. It's not going to do the job you wanted to do. It wasn't the great thing that you thought it was. You know, you were taken in by the salesman's patter or whatever it was, you know, and you, you decided to make a commitment and, and spend your hard-earned money you know, and it's obviously, you know, after a few weeks not doing the job you thought it was going to do, but you're stuck with it, you know. So, you know, and, and uh, you know, in a, in a fairly crude way, I'm saying that's what happened with some of the kids that I brought on board when I was forming a team, you know, is, you know, some of my picks from watching scrimmages were good, you know, and, you know, the top, you know, five or six players on an 18-player roster you know, might have been everything that I wanted them to be. And then the middle group, so-so, eh, but I can make something out of that. And there was a bottom six, you know, that, the, you know, were not what I imagined them to be at the time. You know, they had a really good tryout, you know, whatever. Or they, you know, 
they scored the one time in their life they've scored from 25 yards and you know and I, and I took that as a sign that they could do it regularly but it wasn't you know and and so you know how do we place players where they should be placed you know and you know and bear in mind that you know I I was on the you know the national team coaching staff and you know selecting players for national teams and that's largely how we selected players at the national team level so that's largely how everybody selects players you know and I said to I said to myself are you capable of teaching the skills you want to teach fantastic dribblers fantastic goal scorers you know those skills I can teach you know so you know, why don't you just do an exercise around Robin one-on-one where you can really focus on a kid. They're getting 50% of the time with a ball. You can see their dribbling skills. The goals are close together, 25 yards apart max. So you can see their shooting skills, which means you can see their passing skills. You know, but here's the, here's the rub. You keep score. And so... At the end of each round, they come round and you say, how did you do? How many goals did you score? How many goals did you give up? And three to one, one to three, two to two, whatever it might be. And you record those scores and you add them up as you're going. And at the end of the, the whole tryout, you've got all of the scores, you know, and even during the tryout. So you're five rounds in the, the tryout and there's a kid there that you haven't even really noticed. And you're looking at that kid's scores and he's tying the best player on your team. You know, the guy that usually wins the one-on-ones. You haven't even noticed this kid because he doesn't have any moves. And there's 25 kids on the field, so it's not like you can yeah, watch. There might be 40 on the field. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. You, and so, you know, you, your, your attention is so split. But as you look at the field and you look at the stats, a pattern appears where a kid you haven't noticed is actually in the top third with the kids you've been training for five years or two years or whatever that should be winning by a country mile. And this kid doesn't have any moves yet. He doesn't even strike a ball well, you know. And you're looking at this kid and he is working his butt off. Yeah. You know, and his first five yards, he's explosive, you know. And so you, you then, because your attention is drawn to that kid because of the stats, you then look at that kid and you say to yourself, now imagine that kid after I've taught him a Maradona turn. Yeah. Imagine that kid after I've taught him to bend the ball in from 25 yards. Imagine that kid, you know, after a year in our indoor facility, and in that year, you know, they've taken 60 to 80,000 shots in our box soccer courts and on our fields. You know, like my daughter did after I assessed how many shots she took in a year. You know, and imagine that kid if she's taken 60 to 80,000 shots for five years in a row. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm doing this now. I've got this work ethic. I've got this kid that's got a good turn of speed and recover when they're beaten. Now we teach them how to jockey and delay and channel. They don't get beaten. And now, you know, they are even better at the one-on-ones than they are. And they're competitive with my best players now. You know, and I, I started seeing these patterns emerge. And so I selected players largely on the stats, new players. I never got buyer's remorse. From that point onwards, I just didn't have any buyer's remorse because I got a kid that was going to come in, work, work his or her tush off, you know, and, you know, and I could teach them a Maradona turn. I could teach them a drag Maradona, preceded by a Cruyff, you know, and how to set, uh, you know, the whole scenario up. That's stuff I can teach. It's not rocket science. You know, I might be the only one, our club might be the only one doing this stuff, you know, because we've delved further into this than other clubs. But at the end of the day, it's optimizing the talent of the individual and knowing that you've got the best talent to work with. But what's talent? 
You know, talent isn't their current skill. You know, talent is maybe their attitude. You know, that's part of talent. You know, that desire to be blue collar and work hard and go box to box and be a Stevie Gerrard type player. But Stevie Gerrard was limited creatively. You know, so, you know, can you, you know, we can develop the creative side of the game. You know, we can't maybe develop the heart that Stevie Gerrard had, you know, to be that engine for Liverpool and England, you know, even though he wasn't the most talented dribbler and goal scorer, he, he made great plays because of his attitude, his willingness to go further than other players and make that type of commitment, you know, and, and that's what allows us to put together these teams that in the long run stay nationally competitive because you know, we spot the, the kids that should be on our number one squad and we spot the kids that should be on our number two squad and our number three squad and our number four squad because we want homogeneity with each of these teams. We have age groups where we've got 10 teams, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I tell parents all the time that the goal is, is homogeneity, right? But specifically, the goal is as close to 50% success and 50% failure, generally speaking, because that's where development comes from. Um, now, there might be a kid at times that, you know, I've had kids like this where I've said to a parent, you know, hey, I really think this team is better for them because it's going to give them 80% success and 20% failure. And the reason I think your kid needs it is because they've got a really crap self-concept. They don't believe, I don't say that quite like that, I'm a little bit more cultural when I say it, but they just, they don't believe in themselves enough. And so I think they need to wait in the direction of success. Or for my own kid, little Calburito Frito, my 10-year-old, I think he needs 20% success and 80% failure because homeboy's got an ego a mile wide and thinks he's already figured it all out, right? But I gen- wonder where he gets that from. <laughs> generally spe- you. Uh, generally speaking. <laughs> generally speaking, kids need about 50% success, 50% failure. And that's why I find specifically our 1v1 tryout setup to be so wonderful in determining Okay, over the course of an hour, two hours, three hours, right? Not in a row, but numerous days um, through the tryout process, we can really get a pretty good idea objectively that back up or help support our subjective opinions in terms of where we're going to find that perfect amount of success and failure to place a kiddo um, in in a team that's going to give them 12 months of growth, 12 12 months of development. Um, You you mentioned that 1v1. So I've... There's a local club in the backyard of where I coach um, that is falling apart. And so I've had, I don't know, eight or nine other Division One level kids. Division One, those who did aren't in Kansas City. There's probably eight or nine divisions in our league. So these are top-level kids um, that have reached out because their club is falling apart. And so um, they've been signing the release forms or whatever USU soccer needs them to do, and they've been hopping into my sessions um, over the last three or four weeks to, to see if this is a good fit for them. That's how I explain it. Is, you know, we've got a team for you. Let's see if you like it and see if this is of value to you. Really, right. The next few weeks, parent and kid, you're trying us out, uh, you know, uh, kind of deal. Anyway, so there's a kid there that last night that's actually not from that group. He's coming from like essentially an advanced rec level, um, an independent premier team, uh, not associated with a club. And the f- first session he shows up, and I'm like, oh, okay, cool. He seems like a nice kid. Let's see how he does. You know, just kind of half paying attention. Then I look at the scores. And I'm like, holy cow. Like this kid's keeping up with some of my horses. Um, and, and I'd watched him during the warm up, during the fakes and move warms up. And like, he knew the skills, but like no level of, 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 of intensity or, you know, his, his skills were technically all had 
numerous errors, numerous, numerous things to work on. So I wasn't expecting it. And then the next, and then the next week I was like, you know what? I'm going to put him against my big horses and I'd be damned if he didn't figure out how to compete against some of my best players. He didn't win the games, but he kept the scores close. And I was watching him really close. Athletically, he's exceptional, but he doesn't look it um, uh, um, at, at first glance. Without those scores, I would have had no idea that this kid specifically has a, uh, a ceiling that far exceeds what I would have ever guessed up front. And so um, hopeful, eager that, you know, through the tryout process, he'll end up joining, joining the group because I think three or four years time, we'll be talking about him. Like we talk about some of the other players that are in the club that are just really exceptionally good players. And he came from essentially wreck to us at, at age 10. I mean, it's not you know, somewhat kind of late. Um, if if that makes sense in the current uh, culture and environment that we have in youth soccer. So, so let's let's go to the other end of that spectrum, though, because um, there are a lot of parents that are only trying out for the top team in a club. Mm-hmm. You know, and so they don't get offered a place in our club on the top team, and they say, okay, we're going to go down the road and we're going to play for a club that doesn't work on the finishing and doesn't have the the tight, fast indoor environment with the you know the rebound boards and the box soccer courts and the small fields that develop those skills because that's where all the great players in world history came from, you know. And but they're only interested in playing on the top team, and yet they need a year of playing for team number two in order to build the skills so that they don't get destroyed practicing mm-hmm. with the top team. And this is what a lot of parents don't recognize is you know you know. With this Legends Club, you know, we get this type of training, but we can't come in, you know, at age 10, 11, 12, you know, having not had any of this training and hope to compete with the kids on the top team. You know, this kid is extremely rare that you're talking about. We need to, you know, be talking to the majority here, which is you you shouldn't be looking to come, uh, come into the top team and play on the top team. Oh, this kid won't be on the top team. This, no. this kid will be in the second or third team. But you, yeah, you yeah. understand the principle yeah. behind yeah. this is that you, know, that you should be looking to come in at a level that your kid can get 50% of the possession yep. you know, and, you know, in a one-on-one. Because if he's getting you know, 20% of the possession, he's getting one-fourth of the opportunity to learn how to take people on and score goals yep. that the other kid is getting. So you don't want to be one of those kids where you're the 20% and the other players, you know, the 80%. You want to try and find a team where for that year it's 50-50. Gradually during that year, your kid works so hard, he turns it into 55 and then 58 and then 61 and then 65. And, and come the next May, you know, when tryouts are rolling around, you know, he's turned that into 80%. Yeah. You know, now he's ready to take the step up and go back to 30% because he's now playing against a better group of athletes with better skills, you know, who are more intense and a little bit faster or whatever. You know, and this is the piece a lot of people get wrong is they, they allow their ego to say, no, we're not playing on the second Legends team. So we're going to go down the road and we're going to play for a club that just boots the ball long and wins games. And it's absolutely crazy that they do that. That's the most frustrating thing for me at tryouts. It, whether it's the kids that are currently here on the second team, but unfortunately cannot make to the first team because their whole first team is returning and the whole first team is really, really good. So unfortunately, it's not the time yet. But they're still getting 
the touches they need, doing the stuff they need in practice, they're getting everything that the philosophy and the facility has to offer. And yet, just because they want the status, they'll jeopardize their own kids' development so they can say, oh, I'm at the first team at this club. Oh, I'm doing this travel league. Oh, I'm doing this. I'm doing that. Instead of thinking, you can do the all the same thing but get the better development you're just not going to be in the first team and the kids coming in as well they come because they see what the first the kids in our first team can do how skillful they are how intense they play and then they want to come in to get this to become that but they're not that yet so they need to be prepared to then get to that point but they don't want to go through that they want the immediate result and they want the status and that's what drives me crazy the status so you shouldn't go for the status you shouldn't try to join the team just because they're this x y and z division you should join the team that you think your kid is going to develop the best and if they're on a team and they're developing why not try to make that team compete with the other teams why not bring that team up instead of you know trying to look and shop so, so uh, I'm glad you brought this up. Uh, I'm not, I'm not wise old sage Andy Barney who's been running trouts for 40 years. Leave the old out of this. <laughs> but I have, and I, I did the math real quick. It's probably been about 40 years that you've been running trouts. Um, uh, I have been doing it for 16, right? And in my experience, early on, um, you know, in my 20s. I used to get so frustrated with that, like, and, and would just beat my head against a wall trying to convince parents. Like, and sometimes it'd be parents new coming into the club that, that weren't going to play on the top team from the start, but eventually I thought were a hundred percent at that level, could be at that level. Sometimes there were kids on my second team that just hadn't quite risen to the level of moving up to the first team. And so they'd leave and go play for somebody else's first team, regardless of whether that first team was better than the current team that they were on because it was their first team. And I finally realized the error in my ways in terms of, and I'm not, it's not hundred percent. It doesn't work every time convincing parents, uh, to take the leap and, and, and to go into the team that I think is the best fit for their kid, but it is working more often than it used to. I used to talk about the next year all the time, instead of taking a page out of Andy's book and going, or not Andy's book, Todd Skinner's book beyond the summit. And if you haven't read this book, it is a fantastic book. I've read it. It took me a while to get around to finally reading it. Um, but I felt like I'd read it before I read it because Andy talked about it and quoted it so often. But the concept is Todd Skinner, Andy, forgive me if, if I don't nail this like you would, but Todd Skinner um, was, a, was a famous mountaineer um, that had turned into a motivational speaker or a, a life coach of some sort. Um, and his concept was the biggest mistake that, that mountain climbers make is that they start climbing the mountain from the bottom of the mountain instead of the top of the mountain. Instead, what you should do is you should, from a mountain mountaineer perspective, is you should chart your path from the top all the way down. That way you don't get in a scenario where you're climbing from the bottom up and you get to a rock face that is in, unclimbable and you have to backtrack back down the mountain, move to the side, and then go back up. And applying that logic to, for us, sales or coaching is I now early on when I have a player that I want to get into the mix or a parent that's, that's trying to figure out if they should stay on the team that they're on or whatever it might be, is I ask them, what is your goal? Like, what are you hoping to gain from this youth soccer experience for your 10-year-old son or your 10-year-old daughter, right? And oftentimes, they'll tell me the stuff that I really want to hear. They'll say things like, I really want my kid to still be playing at 17, 18 years old. I really want my kid to have a successful high school career. I'd love for my kid to have the opportunity to play in college at 18, and they get to decide when they quit the game or whatever it might be. And once we have 
I have an understanding of what their end goal is, then it's easier for me to chart a path for them in that conversation that gets them to that end goal. And it then goes to, well, if you want your son or daughter to end up playing at, you know, all the way through and really enjoying the game, don't you think it would be a really big negative if next year they played on this team when their 1v1 scores are X, right? When they're getting 20% of the possession for the entire next year, that's going to have a negative impact on their fun meter. That's going to have a negative impact on their self-confidence. That's going to have a negative impact on their actual technical acquisition because they don't have enough of the ball. So if the end goal is that, wouldn't it make more sense to sit in this team doing you know X, Y, and Z and gaining this amount of, uh, of, of touches and confidence building so that they can continue to get better every year? No, Knowing that the goal is a marathon, not a sprint, to still be running at 17, 18 years old versus now. And that works some of the time, much more often than it did for me in the 20s when I immediately just went to next year. Like, like let's talk about next year and, and kind of dig into it. The second thing I wanted to bring up is, and I hear this often, I have a, a dad that they left me a while ago. Um, him and I are still close uh, and still run into each other at the grocery store often. Um, uh, but, you know, he's got this, 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 he's, he's former Marine, this iron sharpens iron perspective, right? Ah, I want my daughter practicing with the best team that we can because that's how she's going to get better. And, um, and the conversation I've had with him and other parents as well is iron does sharpen iron once it's iron, but the kids oftentimes aren't quite there yet. Like they got to continue to strengthen their confidence and their ability and their skill set. And so the goal should be. But his be... six-year-old daughter is iron. <laughs> well, you know, she was probably eleven at the time. But, <laughs> but yeah, uh, and, like let, 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 let's spend a little bit more time, like like curating the metal to really make it strong before we go throw it to the wolves of of uh, of the top level that we can that that we can find somebody to to take the kid on, uh, if that makes sense. Nobody, well, like, they, no, nobody makes anything out of iron anymore. You know, it's not it's not one of those medals with the tensile strength that, that people thought it had. In I'm not years. I'm not a connoisseur of the metal industry, so I don't know. <laughs> you know, it, you know this this ignorant mentality towards development is is shocking. You know, because you know it it's about having your kid challenged to the optimum degree, and you know, and parents get impatient you know it, it's you know parents know that our club develops the most incredible skill set you know but they leap to other clubs way too early and within a year or two have lost a huge part of that skill set and you know and I, I i don't wish to be you know that person that rings the alarm bell you know but it's never not happened every single time a player has left us to go to quote unquote a you know a team that you know is perceived to be playing at a higher level, that kid has lost a huge chunk of what made him or her special, you know. And you know, within a couple of years, you know, kids that have actually been in the national team picture when they were fourteen years old, you know, and breaking into the national team on the squad, playing on the team, you know, are not in the picture anymore because they're individual ability to stand out, dominate opponents, dominate games, has diminished to such a degree that they've just become another number on the field. Whereas when they were with us, they were in that national team picture. And it's never worked the other way. You know, people don't come to our club and lose their status. 
you know, people come to our club, it'll always expand their status. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Sense. So, you know, they go to, you know, as freshmen into varsity teams, you know, they make the ODP squad, you know, they, they make national squads, regional squads, you know, and they only ever get better while they're with us. And hundreds and hundreds at this point in time have gotten impatient, joined other teams that supposedly play at a higher level, but because their coaches don't focus on deceptive dribbling and goal scoring and the things that make the great players great, they lose what made them special and they sink back into the morass in that muddy middle. You know? And so they don't you know, retain their position at the highest level. You know? And it happens every single time without fail. And yet, parents every year do this you know, you know, to some of our teams. Uh, only a limited amount. Um, and, but usually a limited amount of the best teams in the 14, 15, 16-year-old age range, you know, because they've never been through this before. They are rookie parents. They don't have the experience. They haven't seen what we've seen where, you know, we guarantee their t- kids are going into the tank compared to how they were when they were 13, 14 with us. By the time they're 16, 17 with another club and they haven't worked on this stuff for years to any great degree and they've lost what made them special, you know, they're just not going to stand out like they did when they were with us. So it means they're not going to get the college scholarship that they would have gotten had they stayed with us. They're not going to be rep- representing that national team that they would have represented had they stayed with us. You know, and it happens again and again and again because parents are, are rookies. Their rookies are dealing with a 15-year-old you know, that wants to go all the way and get a college scholarship and maybe end up in the pros because it's all about your technical ability to do the things that other kids can't do, bend the ball in from 25 yards, beat a player in the one-on-one and bend the ball in from 25 yards, and your ability to stand out, to impress a college coach, to impress a national team selector. And kids and parents shoot themselves in both feet every year, you know, and often some of our better players because they get impatient instead of trusting the process. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's the margin of greatness. If 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 you're just like everybody else, the the the, the coach might not notice you because they notice the guy next to you doing it. I uh, mean, but if you've got something special, just look at the best players in the history of the game. Just look at the current best players in the game. The guys that the kids are wearing their jerseys. The guys that people buy tickets to see. People, the players that people are googling and look watching their highlights, look at what they do. They do, and look at your training and see if that's what you're doing in your training. It's that simple. Like I, I, I go back to the Hanson Norris really story. Simple. It's you know, that simple. Seriously, if you're just getting the ball, one touch pass, one touch pass, control pass, control pass, move here, move there, pass, pass, move here, move there, pass, pass. Oh, long ball, boom, and that's all you're doing in practice, Kate. Okay. Then you tell me. You're going to be mediocre. You know, Anson Dorrance, you know, we're picking the national team. We picked 10 players, bang, bang, bang. And it's worth telling again because a lot of people won't listen to totally that agree. episode. Totally agree. Yeah, you know, yeah. we're coming into tryouts. We're coming to the end. So this is a good way to finish this episode. Yeah, so, so, you know, there's, there's the four regional coaches, the youth national team coach, Hank Lung, at the time, who was coaching at George Mason University. Anson, you know, I was one of those regional directors of coaching. And this is the under-19 national camp. And Brandy Chastain, the one the World Cup in 1991, is on that, you know, was, was on that national team that we picked that day. And Linda Hamilton, that won the 1999 
1991 World Cup in China was on the, the under-19 national team that we picked that day. Two completely opposite players, Brandy and Linda. Brandy was in the first 10. We picked 10 players instantly. Everybody was in agreement, you know, and Anson's off to the side letting us pick the team. He didn't have any input. He just sat there with a smile on his face, you know, and then we bogged down, you know, and, and you know, I looked at him and it was like he knew this was going to happen. He's kind of chuckling to himself. So we're trying to decipher which players out of the next 40, all of which have got certain talent, deserve to be on the team. You know, and uh, after we you know, weren't getting anywhere for about 10 minutes, Anson said, can I show you what you guys are doing? And I thought it was a weird way of describing it. And we all looked at Anson and said, yeah, of course you can. You know, you're the boss, you know. And, and uh, he said, look at the players you've picked. So we went to what we'd already done in order to figure out <coughs> what we should do next, which is you know, kind of a good way of looking at things sometimes. And, uh, and we looked at the players and it hit me like a rock. I'd been a terrible coach since the beginning of my coaching career, age 16, you know, and here I am, the regional director of coaching in charge of coaching education, as well as selecting players to go to national teams and regional squads and all that stuff, you know, and I'm, I'm looking at, at, at the players that I've picked and it was dead obvious as soon as I looked at the list. I'd picked either kids, that, kids, young women that could dribble and score or one or the other. And that's what I'd picked. But I hadn't ever trained dribblers and golf scorers. You know, I was that idiot that, you know, I knew the best players, but I didn't train the best players. Because, you know, there's some sort of a bias towards you have to share the ball, you have to pass. You know, and so most of my drills were passing oriented, you know. And I came from England. We hadn't won anything since the 1966 World Cup. So, you know, it's obvious why I was passing oriented. We, you know, we were in a long ball passing mode as a culture. You know, and, uh, and Anson said, now, shouldn't we be now picking the people? We've got all the creative ones that can combine together and score goals and beat people and score from 25 yards by bending the ball into the net. Now, you know, shouldn't we pick in some axe murderers that, you know, that, that can take, you know, opponents apart, take Brandy Chastain apart when she's got the ball, you know, and straight away, Linda Hamilton was like, you know, if Linda's listening, you know, no apologies, Linda, you were f absolutely scary as a player, you know, and, you know, she was that, that individual, you know, I'd look at Linda and say, I wouldn't want to play against Linda. She was absolutely solid as a rock. You know, built like a brick outhouse, you know, and people would just bounce off of her. When she went into a tackle, you know, it was like an 18-wheeler, you know, just running into a bunch of minutes. You know, it, it, was, it was frightening. You know, so instantly she was in the team, you know, and Brandy Barnes out of Texas who, who fought Brandy Chastain in a, in, you know, from, a, from an aggressive defensive perspective because Brandy Chastain was a center striker from from California in those days you know and so Brandy Barnes was a fierce warrior in one game they went against each other when the south you know Brandy Barnes was from Texas played against the west you know and these two were just like you know female gladiators going against each other trying to earn a national team spot you know and and uh, Anson had, had, had like warned me Watch this matchup. This is going to be awesome. You know, there's going to be blood on the floor. You know, and so you know, straight away we went to you know the the players that need that needed to fill roles. You know, against the more skillful players of the other teams. You know, and the ones that were defensively you know, more capable of destroying the creativity of the other teams, if that makes sense. And then it became easy to pick the rest of the players because we defined what we were looking for. Here's the thing, though. Shouldn't we all be trying to develop that first 10 group of players 
the you know as coaches nobody aren't, wants their kid to be the last one picked exactly you know aren't we you know you know guilty of dereliction of duty if we you know you know don't pick or don't develop those incredible dribblers and goal scorers because they're the Leo Messi's and Mbappe's of the last World Cup. Without Leo and Mbappe, you know, then, you know, their teams are nowhere near as competitive. And when was it that Argentina w- went into the tank? Who did they take off? Messi. Dem- De Maria. De- Di Maria. Oh, De Maria yeah. Super skilled, yeah. was dominant in that game, you know, created a whole bunch of stuff, you know, that, you know, that led to goals. And, 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 and didn't he score a goal? You know, I don't remember if he but, scored, but, but you know, I mean, he, uh, it, both World Cups that are even 2014 and this World Cup that they won, Di Maria was nearly as good. And, as, and the coach took him Leo. off because he thought we need to preserve our lead. Well, the best way to preserve a league lead is get another goal. Let's get the ball you know, is, is, you know, is continue to do what you're doing. And keep the ball and, and, and it offer was a, threat. It, it was in like the 76th minute that they took him off. From that point onwards in the rest of the game, France dominated and pulled it back to even. You know, and, and so there there's a very good there's a very good story on that note. Uh one of Brazilian best coaches ever, uh Vanderlei Luchemburgo, he was coaching Real Madrid and they were beating Juventus one nothing uh at uh in Italy, I think. Uh and game was fine. He said, I didn't understand. It was the nearly the 80th minute, we were up 1-0, and Juventus wasn't attacking us. And then he was like, well, we got a, another game next week. I'm going to preserve Ronaldo and Zidane. So he subbed them off, like, in the last six, seven minutes. He said, as soon as the two guys subbed off, Juventus went. Tied the game. Psychologically, tied, tied, think of that. Tied the game, one to one <laughs> in the last five minutes. And he was like... I mean, you look at the coaches, you know, rule book, right? You're up to, you, to you take two strikes. He put two other guys that were fast, athletic, would, you know, do whatever. But after the game, he's like, what just happened? Zidane goes to him, mister. So, so the much moment the- you sub me and Ronaldo off, they got confident. The mo- while we were there, even if we're just standing there, they're scared. They know that if they fall asleep, we're going to do something. The moment we're not there, it gave them hope. So, so the, the hope thing is, is, is the thing. So, you know, you see the two superstars leave the field. You start to believe that now you've got an opportunity. It's only a small window, six or seven or eight or ten minutes with, with overtime. You know, and, and uh, you know, time added on. But you know, we had this happen in the Soul game, you know, with these, you know, these, these guys that I'm coaching right now. Um, and, you know, so we're, we're, we're up in the game, you know, and we're coasting. You know, we're looking really, really good, you know, and totally dominating the game. And, you know, one of our players you know, got goosed by one of the players on the other team, lost it, elbowed the guy in the nose, in the penalty area, you know, so gives away a penalty kick, you know, and, you know, and it was just incredible how, you know, one play changed the game, you know, not not just because they scored from the penalty kick, but it, it was the belief. Yeah, All of a sudden, their whole team was a different team, Because they felt that they could get something out of the game. Yeah. You know, and we came back and we tied the game two to two in the end after going two to one down. But they scored that penalty kick and straight away they scored another goal. And we dominated up till that point. You know, and it was just the belief factor. 
How stupid was it of a coach to take the two best players in the world at the time off of the field? And it was like taking Di Maria off of the Argentinian sure. team. You know, the Argentina was a little bit more deflated. They didn't have somebody to go to that they could trust. But the French team said they just took their second best player off. Now we can score. Now we can get the ball more often. You know, and so it wasn't just the fact that they took their second best player off. It was the fact that the French team believed yeah. because they took their second player, the second best player off. Well, um, I've got the best way for us to turn the lights off on this podcast. And Andy, while you were talking about Linda Hamilton, who I'd never heard of other than this story, I thought, I'll Google her. Maybe she got married. Um, and that's why I don't recognize Linda Hamilton. Maybe she had a different last name. Um, I didn't find that out. She's still Linda Hamilton. She's still coaching the game. Are you ready for this one, Andy? She is 53 years old. Which means what? That just means you're really old and been around <laughs> in the game for a long time. <laughs> With that said, Andy, tell Felipe, me something I don't know. Another great episode. <laughs> Thanks for it. Everybody, give us a review uh, wherever you listen to this. We would appreciate it. Take All care, right. guys. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Bye.